Clifford, if I forget, will you remind me about the table tonight? We don't usually do it on Sunday night, but so I could easily forget. And as I haven't got it written down, I probably will forget. All right, come with me please to Book of Romans, chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. We'll read from verse 22. Paul writing to the believers in Rome. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. But now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Acacia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. It pleased them, for they are their debtors. Words like duty, words like obligation, indebted, owing, these are not words that the church is comfortable with. Somehow or other, we perceive them as being legalistic. They seem to threaten, perhaps, our understanding of grace. Maybe we get the feeling that they'd want to drag us back into some kind of legalism of the Old Testament, and that we would lose our freedom in Christ that the New Testament provides. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth, because these are words that both Jesus and Paul used. They are every bit as much kingdom words as grace and mercy and faith and love and hope and giving and receiving. Let me just explain just for a second the scriptures that we just read together. Paul said about these Gentile Christians who had raised an offering for Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And he said, indeed, they are debtors. These Gentile Christians are debtors to these Jewish Christians. And he said, because they have received of them spiritual things, so it really isn't a big deal for them to give them their carnal things or their material things. You understand, of course, that Christianity grew out of Judaism. It was to the Jew first. And the whole of Christianity came out of Judaism. Jesus himself was a Jew. Jesus himself grew up in a Jewish household. The early church consisted of Jews exclusively until they were 
evangelism began to happen into different areas. And so, Gentiles, and that includes us, by the way, we owe a great deal to the Jew. In fact, the Jew, in the end, refused Christ, and we as Gentiles were grafted in. So therefore, we should always do our best to honor the Jew, because we actually owe them. God, in his wisdom, caused the gospel and his son Christ to come from the Jewish people, the Jewish race. And so Paul was a believer in obligation, in duty. He was a believer in all of these things. In fact, there's, there's a lovely little statement he makes. You don't need to turn to this, but in the little book of Philemon, remember I keep telling you this is a Christian businessman, somebody that actually Paul had led to Christ. And how that one of his young servants had stolen some of his master's goods and run off to the big city. And there was found out, ended up in prison with the Apostle Paul. He just so happened to be a friend of this man Philemon. Paul got him saved. And when it was come time for him to be released, then he wrote a little letter to say to this young man Onesimus, this slave, to take it back to his boss Philemon and his friend Philemon. And this is the little letter we have in our Bible here. And so here's what he said in part of this letter. Verse 17, he's writing to his friend Philemon about this young man Onesimus who's coming. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owed you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. But then he said, not to mention to you, and then he goes ahead and mentions, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. So how could the man refuse? Paul is saying, now this young man's coming back to you. If you read the whole letter, he's got saved. He's born again. He's going to make good, but he has no money. But whatever he owes you, put it in my account. I'll make sure. If you want it back, I'll pay it. But by the way, not to mention, then he mentions you owe me big time. You owe me big time. Remember how I led you to the Lord? I'm paraphrasing. Remember how I led you to the Lord? So you actually owe me. So he said, let's just cancel the debt. That's what he said. Let's just cancel. Let's be evens here. And so Paul understood duty and debt and obligation. But Paul's sense of that was not born out of some kind of pride. You know, there's some people that you couldn't give a gift to. They would just refuse it. Because they feel, well, if you give me something, it means I owe you something. And I don't want to owe anybody anything. So I don't want to be indebted to you. So I'm not going to take it. That's just sheer pride, isn't it? So Paul felt an obligation. He felt a duty. He felt owing. He felt debt. But not out of some false sense of pride. Neither was it born out of legalism. He was not trying to score some brownie points with God. He was not trying to even up the score with God. Saying, now look what you've done for me, so this is what I'm going to do for you. So that will just even itself out. Paul certainly did not believe in that. And so in this sense that Paul's talking about, because rather Paul's sense of debt and owing and duty, it was born out of a compassion, a love for God, and a love for people. And the God who saved him, the God who marvelously changed his whole life, he just was so in love with God, he just wanted to 
And he felt obligated to. He felt it was his duty to give that away. What God had given it to him, he wanted to just give it away to everybody he met. He just wanted to do that. So when Paul talks about duty and obligation and debt, that's his heart. That's where he's coming from. He's coming from a feeling, listen, God has done so much for me. How can I do any less than give this away to others? How can I do any less than share this wonderful treasure that God has given me with friends, with loved ones, with beyond that, with people I don't even know, even people in other nations? No wonder he became a great missionary evangelist. And so we must reach out to others with this wonderful gospel of grace. In Romans chapter 1, he writes here from verse 7. Right at the beginning of his letter to these Christians in Rome, he says, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world or throughout the whole Roman Empire. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged to get, may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. So Paul here is saying, and we read a little bit earlier, he was desperate to meet these Christians in Rome. He wanted to be there, but he says, I've been delayed, I've been held up, I've been hindered. Not by, not by the devil, but because he was busy taking the gospel to other parts of the world. But now he's got this offering, he's going to visit Jerusalem, and after he does that, then he's going to head to Spain, and he wants to meet these Christians eventually in Rome. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. What does that mean, Greeks and barbarians? Well, Paul was called to preach to the Gentiles. That was his primary calling, and he knew it. Interesting, isn't it? For the man who was brought up as a Pharisee, who knew the Jewish law inside out, God sends him to be apostle to the Gentiles who knew nothing about the law at all. And he sends Peter, by and large, to the Jews. And Peter was not brought up as a rabbi, but he sent so that God would get the glory. Now he said, he talks about these Greeks and barbarians. The Greeks felt that they were the most cultured, that they were the most academic, that they were the smartest, they were the philosophers of life. And everybody else who was a non-Greek was just a barbarian. They were just rank, ignorant pagans to them. So Paul said here, he says, I am indebted because I'm a preacher of the gospel of the Gentiles. I'm indebted to, you, to the Greeks, to those who are wise in their own flesh, to those who are philosophers. I'm indebted to reach them, but I'm also indebted to reach the barbarians, the ones that they look down upon, the ignorant class, the uncultured. It says both to the wise and both to the unwise. Both to those who think they're well-trained and those who are just ignorant people. He says, I am debted. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. 
So as much as is within me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now here's this little Jew, a tent maker. And here he is going, hoping to go to the great capital of the world, Rome. What would they make of him? Because they didn't like Jews very much. And remember when he goes to Rome, it's full of Jews, but most of them are slaves. Do you know that the Colosseum is built by 50,000 Jewish slaves? Many of whom died in the making of it. That's what the Romans thought of them. They crucified them. They had whole streets full of crucifixions of Jews all over the place. So Paul's going here because he felt obligated. I must reach these people. I must reach these Romans, these Greeks, these barbarians. Whoever, I just, I've got to get to them. I must reach them. This is what he's saying. So debtor here means one held by an obligation, one bound by a duty. Kenneth Woos said the word refers to a personal moral obligation. Now Paul recognized that his first obligation was to God and the call of God in his life. But how that was expressed was reaching out to the Jew, to the Greek, to the Roman, to the barbarian, to anybody and everybody he could reach. He was obligated. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. Paul didn't think this was optional. It was essential. But what about us? Let's lay Paul aside for a moment. What about us? Freely we have received. Surely freely we ought to give too. But we make excuses, don't we? We give ourselves an out. We say things like, but I am not called that way. Excuse me, since when have you been excluded from the Great Commission? I don't think anybody, any believer on earth, is excluded from the Great Commission. Mark 16, go into all the world. The literal translation is go into every man's world and preach the gospel. Every man's world is where you are. It's not where I am, it's where you are. I can't walk into your office. I can't walk into your school. I can't walk onto your factory floor. I can't walk up to your next door neighbor. That's your world. That's where you are. That's where God has planted you. So you have an obligation. Someone says, well, I'm too afraid. Get over your fear. God has not given us the spirit of what? Timidity. Because that's what the word means but a power and love in the sound mind. So just get over your fear. We're afraid of a whole lot of things, aren't we? But you've got to get over them. Otherwise, you'd sit in your house, you'd never do anything. Someone says, well, I, I, I just lived the life before then. Well, I hope that you do. But Jesus did that too, but didn't stop him telling people. Sure didn't. Paul lived the life too. It didn't stop him telling people. So for us just to say, well, I just lived the life before. Well, that's the very least that we can do. That's what we ought to do. But we need to go beyond just living the life before them. We need to get the opportunity and share something and say something. So Paul felt an obligation. He felt it a duty. In Revelation 22, 
17, don't turn to it. It says, and the spirit and the bride, that's us, says, come. Almost the last thing Jesus said to the church. And it's written, Revelation 22, 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come. So the invitation is always to come. Somebody has got to make the invitation. God has always reached out to this world. He's always reached out to lost and dying world. In Genesis 3, 9, he said to Adam, Adam, where are you? The first thing God said when Adam fell, when he was lost, the first thing he said, Adam, where are you? I want to know, where are you? Of course, you know when God asks a question, he already knows the answer. He was eliciting something from Adam, wasn't he? Where are you? That's a good question, isn't it? God is interested in where people are. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. Let us reason together, says the Lord. It does no harm to reason with people. To sit down and actually talk to them and reason some things. Now we know there's some people and you could talk 20 years and get nowhere. But most people, if you sit down and reason some things with them, ask them some pertinent questions, have a little conversation with them, see where they are, see where they are if they're on a journey trying to find something or someone, because most people are journeying somewhere. Try and tune in on that and see where they are. Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So our obligation is to find people, to fish for them. And you fish in different ways, don't you? When I was growing up as a boy, there was a river, probably no more than a mile from where I was born. And particularly in the better weather, when you came home from school, you put the school bag in the corner, forget about the homework. No, don't forget about the homework. That's a bad thing to say. Is that right, Jimmy? That's a bad thing. I'm setting you a bad example, son. And I got the fishing rod out and went down to fish. Sometimes it was stick with a cord on it, a thread on it, and a safety pin. Didn't get much fish that way, believe you me. But you're different. There's fly fish, and there was bait fish, and there's all. Some people used to actually take dynamite down to the river and fish that way. You guaranteed you caught fish, you blew them up. They actually did that. There's different ways to catch fish, different bait you use, different times of the day. You get different fish. Some are halfway up the stream, some are low down, some are behind the reeds and some are in the middle and some are in the rapids and there's just different fish and lie in different places so you've got to find out a way to reach them. It's the same with people. Everybody's different. Do you ever notice all the conversations Jesus had with people in the Bible? It's all different. Different conversations, different people. Try to reach them in a different way. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you have not chosen me but I have chosen you 
and have ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. In John 4, 35 and 36, Jesus said, Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. At our next men's fellowship, when Bob comes, Bob could stand for two hours and tell you about all the people that is one for Christ. And most of it, most of it is people that he has just met and had a simple conversation with. Let me give you a couple of examples. One night, him and his wife was coming home very, very late from a meeting. They could stop with the police. This is about half eleven at night. He rolled down the window. The policeman looks in. The policeman said to him, Where are you going, sir? And Bob says, I'm going to heaven. Where are you going? <laughs> and he says, For the next 30 minutes. And he says, At the end, that policeman had big, big tears coming down his cheeks. Because he didn't know when he stopped that car that night that the Holy Spirit was going to touch his heart. He didn't know. Two wee women in Armagh one day, he told me they stopped me in the street and they said, we're lost. <laughs> Imagine saying that to the evangelist. We're lost. <laughs> what an opportunity. <laughs> well, he told them how to be found. And just simple things like that. The window cleaner, the man that comes with the milk, Anybody and everybody. I saw one day outside the, uh, the mile down in Lisburn. It was the time the, the voluntary services were going up 10 cans. And uh, so they were handing out leaflets. And as I was walking past, I, he handed Bob a leaflet. And Bob said, I've got one for you too. They got a track. I started talking to him. And I heard, the last thing I heard was going away. And it's free. It's absolutely free. You don't have to pay a penny for this. <laughs> I was standing behind him in the garage one day up in the BP garage in Moira here. He didn't see me behind him. And he, he bought his petrol. And just as he handed over the money to the girl, just as he went to reach it, he pulled it back. He says, before I give you this, let me just tell you something. And <laughs> he just started launching and just share the gospel with that person. And that's what he's like. Every opportunity he just shares. In Romans 1.13, Paul says, Now... I do not want you to be unawares, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles, because I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Acts 8 and 4. They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. Who do we reach out to? Who do we reach out to? What about family? There's a tough one, eh? Let's start with the tough one first. 
What about family? You say, David, you have no idea what my family are like. You have no idea. They have absolutely no interest. If I even mention God, they go ballistic. Well, some families are like that. But there's lots who are not like that. And actually, you as a son or a daughter or as even a mother or a father have the most wonderful opportunity to share with your loved ones. And sometimes you just got to pluck up courage. What's the worst can happen? They might tell you to shut up. At least in our country, that's probably the worst that can happen. If you're in Pakistan somewhere, it could cost you your life, literally. But what's the worst can happen? But what if they listen? What if you share the gospel with them and they listen? When I shared that night with my own father, when he was 75 years old, and I was going off for five weeks to America to preach, and he had been quite ill, and I went to see him the night before I left. And I said to him something like this. I says, Dad, I'm concerned about you physically. You're not well. I'm going to go off, so I'm down tonight to see you. And I really was concerned. And I really was nearly not going to go. My mother insisted. I still went anyway. But I says, I'm more concerned about your soul. And I says, you know the gospel. My mother said, tell him again. And my father was quite deaf. And so she sat behind him and says, tell him again. Now, I'd heard it umpteen times. My eldest sister, who was the family favorite, used to sit on his knee when she was younger and tell him about Jesus, and the big tears rolled down his cheeks, but he never accepted the Lord. But that night, I told him again. And I said, Dad, would you like to receive Christ tonight as your personal Savior? And to tell you the truth, I wasn't expecting him to say yes, but he said, yes, I do. And that night... And the wee pensioner's bungalow, we got on our knees, the three of us, and he prayed that prayer. And he never looked back. Sometimes you just have to take courage in hand and just do it. What's the worst can happen? What if they respond the right way? What if you were the one to actually lead your mom or your dad or your sister or brother to Christ? What if it was you did that? Do you know that's the most wonderful experience of your life. To lead anybody to Christ, but to lead a loved one is absolutely precious. In John chapter 1, 40 and 42, do you remember how Andrew came and how he found Christ? And then what did he do? He went to his brother Peter. The very first person he wanted to share the good news with was his own brother. And he went to Peter and Peter came to Christ also. You ever remember then after that, again in John chapter 1, how that Philip, Philip and Nathaniel were great friends. They probably had shared scriptures together over the years. Nathaniel was a deep thinker. Nathaniel would be the one who would be looking for Messiah to come. And whenever Philip found Christ the Messiah, he went, immediately he went to Nathaniel. But he was very clever. He approached him, you know, we have found him whom it says in the law and the prophets. So he knew that Nathaniel was into the law and the prophets. He knew Nathaniel was a reader of the word. 
He knew Nathanael was a deep thinker. So he approached him that way. He got his attention. We have found him of whom it is spoken of in the law and the prophets. Now that immediately got his attention. By the way, whenever he said Jesus of Nazareth, that was a bit of a disappointment to Nathaniel. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Of course, Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Every student of the Bible knew that. That's in Judea. This is in Galilee. This is Nazareth. It just didn't add up in his thinking. But you see, Philip was, then Philip says, come and see. Just come with me. Let, let me introduce you to him. And as soon as he went to introduce him, what did Jesus say? Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. And Nathaniel was just absolutely blown away with that, wasn't he? If I'm paraphrasing, how did you know me? He says, I saw you under the fig tree. He says, you're going to see greater things than this. But I knew you. I saw you. And so, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's neighbors. Remember in John 4, the woman at the well, how that Jesus, when he shared with her, and she got that wonderful revelation of who he was. What was the first thing she did? She left her water pots, she went into the city, and she told all of her friends in the city, come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is this not the Christ? And you know what? They all came out to see him. And then when they heard Jesus, it says, now we believe him, not because of what you told us, because we've heard him ourselves. But she was the one, she was the catalyst. The first thing she wanted to do when she got the good news was go and share it. And she went to the ones that she knew in the city and she told them and then they all come out to meet him. What a wonderful opportunity to share with Christ, Christ with people. What about work colleagues, acquaintances, business associates, or like Bob, people we just casually meet. It's loads of opportunities, aren't there? What should our approach be? How do we approach people? Well, first of all, ask yourself, are they busy right now? Are they preoccupied? Have a wee look and see what they're doing first. Because if you just barge in in the middle of a conversation on the telephone they're having, you're not going to get much of a reception. I told you about the person I knocked on their door one night. Down a Larn. The door opened, this big black dog just flew out past me and out the front gate that I left open and into the, into the green outside. And he flew out after it. I mean, like an idiot stood there to come back. And he came back, the dog with a scruff of the neck and hit it a boot and kicked it up. The, he says, what do you want? Wasn't a great evangelistic moment that, let me tell you. I just lost his attention. So you've got to look and see if they're busy. Are they alone? Is it an opportune moment? Because sometimes when people are with people, I, I discovered this in the workplace. When I worked years and years ago in, in the workplace, I discovered, particularly men, I discovered that on a one-to-one -one they were fine, but just one other man, I'm talking about unsafe people trying to reach, just one other man come up into the conversation and just stopped like that. But you got them on their own, then they were okay. But when anybody else was around. So I used to wait until there was nobody else around to have their undivided attention. 
so they didn't feel inhibited or a little bit embarrassed or they didn't have that macho thing, that great big defense up. They were just normal. And many times when you get talking to those fellas about the things of God, they were very receptive and very open. But as soon as somebody else came along, then they just shut up shop until they were gone again. So you've got to look to see what's the moment like? What's the person? You know, are they willing? Are they willing to talk? Are they... Because some people just doesn't want to talk about it. But if they're willing to talk, uh, and you don't have to tell them everything at the one time either. Sometimes you can just say a little bit and then get their attention, and then back off and then go again another little bit. Sometimes it works well that way. You know, because if you look at people, you know, whenever we did the EE, the evangelism explosion thing, one of the things they taught you was about body language, especially into people's homes. Johnny and I did this together. It's, it's great. You go into people's homes the first thing they taught you was, don't sit in their seat. Because you've got your seat, you've got your own seat in your house, haven't you? And the worst thing a visitor comes in is to sit in your seat. Especially the man, the man's right in front of the TV. You'll know it because the remote's sitting beside it. So you'll know that's his seat. So don't sit in his seat, all right? And don't sit between a couple because you think you're at Wimbledon and your head will be going this way and that way, you know? So there's all these little things that you just look out for. Uh, we'll not go down any more of that road, but just little things. Look at the body language. And, and what we found sometimes when we're talking to people, when you, when you got to a certain place and it was getting too hot for them, then, then they would want to back off. And they would immediately try to change the subject on you. So you let them change the subject and you just backed off. But then you can back onto the subject later on whenever their defense is done again. And that's okay to do that. You look at the conversations Jesus had with people. Sometimes he was straight in there. Other times he kind of teased it out of them. Because everybody's different. So what should our approach be? Well, when it came to Nicodemus, Jesus was very direct. Nicodemus was a religious man. He was a high church man. And Jesus, in talking to Nicodemus late that evening, he just cut to the chase. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, I told, he didn't know what that meant. But Jesus was going to explain what that meant. But he just cut to the chase and just bang, just got right in there. And there's some people you can do that with. There's some people you waste your time talking hours to. You just need to get right in there and just say it. And that's the way Jesus did sometimes. But then there's the indirect approach. Again, the woman at the well. Remember how Jesus approached her? He says, give me a drink. Give me a drink. That just seems a simple little thing. Just give me a drink. But it wasn't so simple to her because she was a Samaritan. And the Jews is no dealing with the Martins. So it was a big thing for her. So he says, give me a drink. It was an indirect approach. And that sparked off a whole conversation just by simply saying, give me a drink. A whole conversation ensued and it ended up with the whole village coming back, the whole city coming back to talk to Jesus. So there's sometimes the indirect approach is good. Sometimes it's the simple question approach. In John chapter 1, In verse, let me just get it here. 
Verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? There's a good question. What do you seek? What are you looking for? You know, we could say to somebody, what are you looking for in life? What are you seeking? What are you trying to find in life? This is what Jesus said here. What are you seeking? What are you really, really wanting in life? What are you seeking? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, that can just open up a whole avenue of thought right there and then, can't it? What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, and translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. Boy, wouldn't you love to have been there in that conversation when they got to the house? Wouldn't you love just to have been there just to see what unfolded, how the conversation went? Jesus must have been a master at steering conversations with people. And sometimes it was just a simple question approach. What do you seek? What are you looking for in life? Sometimes you could ask somebody, what is the most important thing in life? Now, you see, without thinking too deeply, people will rattle off a few things. Say family, health, the usual things. But are those the most important things in life? Sometimes if you just get somebody talking, just opening up, just beginning to open up and make them think about things. What's the most important thing in life? Or, here's a big one. Do you think the world is going to end anytime soon? Hmm. People's all kinds of views on that, haven't they? Anybody watching the news at 10... Anybody seeing the turmoil this world is in has got to think to themselves in their innermost being, this cannot go on forever. Something's got to give. So sometimes just a question like that. Well, what do you think? Do you think this world can go on the way it's going on forever? Most people say, no, absolutely not. Well, what's going to happen to it? What do you think? Just keep asking them questions. And then say, but... Here's what Jesus said. Listen to what he said in Matthew 24. That's right up to date, by the way. Read Matthew 24. That's bang up to date today. Maybe you'll get their attention. Because they think this book is an old fusty library book that has no bearing. But whenever you begin to talk to him this way. Or here's a little simple one. Did you go to church on Sunday? <laughs> they look at you and say, Church? That boring place, you must be joking. You say, well, I used to think that too, but actually, it's not boring anymore. I discovered a real reason for going. You know, so sometimes just a little question can just absolutely change everything and give you an opening just to talk to somebody. I don't know who it was that said this, but I wrote it down. Somebody says, I'm just a nobody 
telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. Well, I'll say that again. I'm just a nobody telling everybody about a somebody who can save anybody. The big church in Willow Creek in America, which is in a suburb of Chicago, one of the pastors there talked about different approaches. They talked about Peter's confrontational approach. He's very bold, he's very direct, and he's very to the point. A bit like Joyce sitting down at the back there. Joyce is very bold, very direct, and very to the point. She doesn't mess around. No long big conversations, just bang, it's right in there. That's Joyce. And you know what? That works brilliantly for her. Because she has led a lot of folk to the Lord. That wee charity shop in Dollingstown. I don't know how many people has been led to the Lord in that shop. I don't know how many people comes in there looking and asking for prayer. And she prays for them. And then she tells them about Jesus. Paul's intellectual approach. This guy said he could be confrontational, but he's a well-educated man, able to reason from the Scriptures. It's good if you can reason from the Scriptures. Then there was a blind man's testimonial approach. You remember him? And they asked him, who did this when he was healed? He says, I don't know. All I know is, once I was blind, now I can see. Not much theology there. <laughs> Didn't argue any scriptures. He just said, this is what happened to me. You're asking me? Well, I don't know. All I know is I used to be blind. Now I can see. End of argument. What can you say to that? So you can say, well, I don't know everything, but I do know this. I've been totally changed. My heart has been changed. I'm a different person than I used to be. They can't argue with that. They see it. They know you. They see your change of life. The testimony is a good approach. Matthew's interpersonal approach. Remember Matthew, the tax collector? Remember when he came to Christ? What was the first thing he did? He had a big party. He invited all his tax collector friends to come to it. Nobody else would invite them. You can be sure of that. But he invited them. And he invited them to meet with Jesus. The best soul winners are the people who've just got saved. They're the best. They don't know a whole lot, but they're just full of it. They're so changed, they just want to tell everybody. And then there was Dorcas, the service approach in Acts 9. This is the woman who witnessed by serving others in Jesus' name. She made clothes for the needy. And she helped the poor. And that just began to open up doors. So, what is your approach? How do you do it? I've read this. I'm going to say this in closing. I read this before. So I'm going to read it again. And I promise you, this will be the last time I'll ever read this. I think this is brilliant. Talking about approaches. The pastor dressed in a comfortable pair of old blue jeans, boarded a plane to return home. He settled in the last unoccupied seat next to a well-dressed businessman with a Wall Street journal tucked under his arm. The minister, a little embarrassed over his casual attire, decided to look straight ahead and for sure stay out of any in-depth conversation. But the plan didn't work. 
The man greeted him, so to be polite, the pastor asked about the man's work. And here's what happened. I'm in the figure salon business. We can change a woman's self-concept by changing her body. It's a very profound, powerful thing. His pride spoke between the lines. You look my age, I said. Have you been at this long? I just graduated from the University of Michigan School of Business Administration. They've given me so much responsibility already. I feel very honored. In fact, I hope to eventually manage the western part of the operation. So, you're a national organization, I asked, becoming impressed despite myself. Oh, yes. We're the fastest growing company of our kind in the nation. It's really good to be part of an organization like that, don't you think? I nodded approvingly and thought, impressive. Proud of his work and accomplishments. Why can't Christians be proud like that? Why are we so often apologetic about our faith and our church? Looking at my clothing, he asked the inevitable question, and what do you do? It's interesting that we have similar business interests, I said. You're in the body-changing business. I am in the personality-changing business. We apply basic theocratic principles to accomplish indigenous personality modification. <laughs> he was hooked, but I knew he would never admit it because pride is very powerful. You know, I've heard about that, he said hesitantly. But you have, have you an office here in the city? Oh, we have many offices. We have offices up and down the whole state. In fact, we're national. We have at least one office in every state of the Union, including Alaska and Hawaii. He had this puzzled look on his face. He was searching his mind to identify this huge company he must have heard about or read about, perhaps, in the Wall Street Journal. As a matter of fact, I said, we have gone international. And management has a plan to put at least one office in every country of the world by the end of this business era. And I paused. Do you have that in your business, I asked? Well, no, not yet, he answered. But you mentioned management. How do they make it work? Well, it's a family concern. There's a father and there's a son and they run everything. It must take a lot of capital, he asked skeptically. You mean money, I asked? Yes, I suppose so. No one knows just how much it takes, but we never worry because there's never a shortage. The boss always seems to have enough. He's a very creative guy. And the money is, well, it's just there. In fact, those of us in the organization have a saying about our boss. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Oh, he's into ranching too, out of my captive friend. No, it's just, we say that to indicate his wealth. My friend sat back in his seat, musing over our conversation. What about with you, he asks. The employees. Well, there's something to see, I said. They have a spirit that pervades the organization. It works like this. The father and the son love each other so much that their love filters down through the whole organization so that we all find ourselves loving one another too. I know this sounds old-fashioned in a world like ours, but I know people in the organization who are willing to die for me. Do you have that in your business? I was almost shouting now. People were starting to shift notably in their seats. Not yet, he said, quickly changing strategies. He asked, but do you have good benefits? They are substantial, I countered with a gleam. 
I have complete life assurance and fire insurance. All the basics. You might not believe this, but it's true. I have holdings in a mansion that's being built for me right now in my, uh, for my retirement. Do you have that in your business? Not yet, he answered wistfully. <laughs> the light was beginning to dawn. You know, one thing has bothered me about all that you're saying. I have read the journals, and if your business is all that you say, why haven't I heard about it before now? That's a good question I ask. After all, we have a 2,000-year-old tradition. Wait a minute, he said. You're right, I interrupted. I'm talking about the church. I knew it. You know, I'm Jewish. You want to sign up now, I ask? <laughs> now that is a very innovative, creative approach, isn't it? Wonder did it work. At least he had a go, didn't he? Paul said, I am obligated. I am a debtor. It is my duty. I must share the gospel. I must witness for Christ. If every single one of us did that, and every single one of us just won one person to Christ, this whole time would be changed, wouldn't it? If every believer would just won one person for Christ. Do you know that a big survey was taken, I'll say this in closing, only 53% of all Christians has ever, ever shared their faith with another person. Only 53%. It's time we started, isn't it? No wonder you can get Coca-Cola all over the world. Everybody knows about Coca-Cola, but there's people who drinks Coca-Cola who has never once heard about Jesus Christ. Never one time, ever in their life. Don't know who you're talking about, but they know about Coca-Cola. Why is that? Because they promote it all around the world. Well, I can't go all around the world, but I live in Moira. You can't go all around the world, but you work in an office. You go to school. That's your world. So go out and share it. Amen? Let's pray.